Hello and welcome to this episode of The Abundant Edge, the podcast all about the worlds of permaculture, natural building, and regenerative living. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I have a fantastic interview for you in this session, so stick around and we'll jump right on in. Before we get started this week, I'm proud to announce that Permaculture Magazine of North America has become the first sponsor of this podcast. Incidentally, they've also just celebrated their one-year anniversary this summer. And as the offshoot of the beloved Permaculture Magazine International out of the UK, there is now a regional edition to help strengthen permaculture knowledge throughout North America. This is one of my favorite go-to resources for the latest information on innovation and news in the permaculture world. If you visit permaculturemag.org to sign up for your hard copy subscription today, you'll get the 25-year digital archive of Permaculture Magazine International as a free bonus. And just for listeners of The Abundant Edge, you can now receive 50% off your digital copy subscription right now by finding the discount code in the show notes for this episode. So go now to permaculturemag.org and dive deep into the local and global solutions that go beyond sustainability. Hello and welcome once again to the Abundant Edge podcast. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, but today I'm actually going to try something new and hand this interview over to my good friend and colleague, Shad Goodsey, owner of Atitlan Organics. Now today I'm super excited to have someone on who I've been wanting to interview since the beginning of this podcast almost a year ago. Today we get to talk to Joel Salatin about his new book, your successful farm business. For those of you who are familiar with Joel's work, this might be a lot different from the subject matter that you're used to him talking about. This book is a lot heavier on the business and marketing side of a small-scale farm and diverse agricultural enterprise. But let me first hand things over to Shad, and we can go from there. All right, so I'm here again with my good friend and colleague Shad Goodsey of Atitlan Organics. And I'm actually going to turn the interview over to him this time because he is a longtime fan of Joel's work, has read all of his books, and has implemented a lot of his advice and teachings from those books on his own farm. So, Shed, tell me a little bit about what you guys got to talk about in this interview. Yeah, thank you, Oliver. Uh, and thank you for the opportunity to speak with Joel. He's definitely a, a hero of mine and a, one of the main leaders in the alternative food movement. Um, and I think this actually was an awesome interview, even according to Joel several times, I think was excited by some of the, some of the topics we got to, we got to dabble in. Um, but we, you know, we really explored a bit about his new book, Your Successful Farm Business, which he calls a graduate level course where the undergraduate level is You Can Farm. And if you haven't read You Can Farm, you should check that one out as well. But, uh, we get into a lot of stuff about um, about observing the land and knowing how to approach a new piece of land. Uh, about halfway through the interview, Joel really walked through his whole kind of start to finish uh, farm design, which is really absolutely amazing. And in a few short minutes, I got to experience a lot of distilled knowledge of all about access and water and, and control. And uh, really hearing it from the horse's mouth was was really awesome. So we got we got to touch on farm design um, and, and the basics around that. We also talked about sales and marketing and how looking at the farm as a business can be a challenge, but but it's absolutely necessary for the longe- longevity of any sustainable operation. So 
uh, in the book, but also in the podcast, Joel goes through a couple of great ideas for marketing and why it's absolutely integral to the small farmer's success to be capturing most of the retail dollar for their products. Um, we talked a bit about, you know, uh, farms or farmers who are maybe at the three to eight year mark where they've been doing it and possibly the enthusiasm wears off a little. Uh, the first few seasons you're carried by the, by the dream of working with the land, but then the reality starts to hit and, and you realize you have to make some changes if you really want to make the business work. So especially for people who are considering starting a farm or who have already done it, uh, this is an, this is an awesome podcast. I actually asked him, you know, what are some of the telltale signs of people approaching success that they're close to it after a few seasons, but they're just not quite there yet. And how can they, how can they sense if it, if it's successful and, and how to really go for it to, to round that corner? And he lays out a list that I don't think appears in any of his other books anywhere. Uh, and he was actually writing it down as he was telling me about it. Um, and so you have to listen to get the list, but, but really it's, it's really informative for people who are strongly considering making a living working with the land. Um, yeah. Marvelous. And I know you got to use some of your own examples from your experience farming and where you are at currently with Atitlan Organics. That kind of worked as a bit of a case study and gave some context to some of the questions. So good job with that. Um, I know this is a really um, information and uh, practical advice heavy episode. So if anybody has a notebook on hand, you probably want it for this one. Uh, why don't we hand things over now to Joel Salatin? Sounds great, Oliver. Thanks a lot. All right. Greetings. I'm Shad Goodsey coming at you from Abundant Edge Podcast. And today we're super excited to be here with Joel Saladin. Joel, thanks for coming on. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Chad. Thank you very much for having me on. Awesome. Yeah, so maybe I know your time is short. You're a really busy guy. So let's just get right into it. Uh, I want to start for those who don't know you. Uh, if you could maybe just tell me a bit about your background and briefly how you got into regenerative farming. Well, I'm second generation here. Um, I stand on the shoulders of giants. My my uh, paternal grandfather was a charter subscriber to Rodale's Organic Gardening and Farming magazine when he first launched the Rodale uh, deal back in about 1949. And my dad got his, you know, environmental bent from him, and I got it from dad, and so you know, here we are. I don't, I don't have a, I don't have a conversion story. I've always, our family's always been weird, <laughs> and uh, so you know, we I always said Dad was organic before Rachel Carson wrote Silent Spring, mm -hmm. and Dad was a, Dad was an economist. Uh, his degree was in economics. He did tax accounting and bookkeeping and stuff. Set up books for people so they could. This is before computers and you know, uh, QuickBooks and things, and. Um, and he saw the whole chemical, you know, chemical industrial approach to agriculture as being kind of like a drug addiction. You, know, you got to get more powerful stuff all the time to get the same kick, and it's, you know, financially, uh, um, you know, more expensive all the time. And uh, and so he he came to this whole, um, you know, uh, ecological farming approach as much from economics uh, as as he did from, uh, from an environmental bent. And so, you know, here we are in Virginia's Shenandoah Valley. We, uh, we came in 1961. I was just four years old and, 
Dad and Mom never made a living from the farm. He was an accountant. Mom was a school teacher. But they used the off-farm, you know, the, the typical off-farm uh, income to pay for the farm so that when I got up into high school, the farm was paid for and I wanted to stay here, but it wasn't it wasn't a going concern. We were not making a salary. You know, we were making maybe enough to pay the taxes, but that was about it. And so when Teresa and I got married in um, in 1980, um, you know, we really, really, you know, started really brainstorming okay how do we how do we really make a living here and um and so we you know we 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 had done a lot of experimenting over the years dad had developed a, a portable electric fencing system so we were moving the cows all the time we knew that that worked very well um from a production standpoint and a control standpoint um i had had chickens since i was 10 years old and so i enjoyed chickens um, so we had the two different species. I wasn't afraid of hard work. And, uh, so we, we essentially, Teresa and I were able to live, we lived in the, in the attic in the farmhouse. You could call it an attic with mud diapers. We called it the penthouse. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, um, and in a, in a year we were able to save enough. Well, actually not in a year. It was uh, more like two years, two years. In two years, we were able to save enough to live. Uh, to live for a year without any outside income. And as soon as we hit that, that, uh, that one year, uh, nest egg, we quit our, uh, well, she had already, we, we had our first child, so she was at home with Daniel, and I quit my town job, and, uh, came back to the farm, fully expecting to run through the, the nest egg in a year, and, and and go back outside for employment, but thinking, well, you know, maybe by being here, we'll get so many things done and get so much launched in a year that the total time away can be a lot less than what we're expecting. And as it turned out, um, you know, we <laughs> we made it. You know, it, it we we I never went back uh, off the farm for off farm employment. It was tight. You know, we drove a fifty dollar car. We we lived on three hundred bucks a month. We um, you know, if we if we didn't grow it, we didn't eat it. We didn't, you know, we had our own firewood, so we had our own heat, um, and so we just lived. We lived extremely uh, cheaply and frugally. And of course, Teresa was, you know, she was a farm girl and and knew how to cook and can and freeze and sew and all that. And so we were able to live, you know, as close to cashless as you can imagine in in our modern economy. And and you know, I I emphasize that to everybody because um, because we are we are today enjoying the leveraging of those early days of frugality and and uh, and not getting you know not getting in debt. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I absolutely love your the the story of your family and your background. Uh, and there's lots of gems in there. Uh, I, I'm going to jump ahead because it seems relevant right now, but I know you also mentioned that you have interns now and the farm is completely different than maybe what it was 30 years ago. Um, and I'm curious, uh, you, you express a concern, for example, that the interns now only know how to process chickens with eight people teams. Uh, are you doing anything for your interns or when you speak to people uh, to challenge them if they're 
in order to start from like a threadbare farm? Or how do you build that ex experience into your apprenticeships and interns? Yeah, well, I guess the, the main thing that we that we build into it um that that's a great question you know how do you how do you duplicate the threadbare look i mean you yeah. the problem is you can't you can't unring a bell now now my, if my wife if teresa had her complete you know way here she she would actually have um designated days or even multiple days at a time where there would be it would be essentially a, a machinery a, a machinery free like a machinery embargo okay uh -huh. um no, nobody rides a four wheeler. We all walk for a day. Uh, nobody uses a front end loader. We use a, a shovel uh, and a pitchfork. You know that sort of thing. Yeah. One of the things that we that we do do um, for sure, like in the poultry processing, is everybody everybody uh, becomes proficient on every station. So we don't let people just just you know pick their station and stay there. Everybody has to kill. They have to spend a you know, a couple of days killing. Everybody has to spend a couple of days, you know, on the scalder. Everybody has to spend a couple of days eviscerating. Um, and so what we want is to to make sure we rotate around enough to develop proficiency in, in every facet. The other thing that we do is um, is we put the onus on the interns to to rotate through the different tasks uh so that by the end of the summer, they will have done everything there is to do. In other words, we don't keep a tick sheet to say, well, Jane, you've, uh, you've sorted cattle. Uh, Bill, you've sorted cattle. Uh, Jim, you have it, so Jim, you come with me. No, basically it's, okay, we're going to sort cattle tomorrow. Who hasn't, sort who hasn't sorted cattle? And, um, and, and it's essentially up to, we leave the, we leave the onus up to the intern to make sure that they take advantage of every opportunity that there is. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's with, with the kind of operation we're running, it's kind of silly for people to get a hernia when you could just use a front end loader. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> or, or, uh, that sort of thing. But, you know, I still, I still take the interns out of, you know, we've got a snapped off post. We don't we don't wait and put on the you know we don't put on the hydraulic post pounder. We throw a post hole digger, a shovel, and a digging iron in. Throw a you know throw a uh, a post in the in the truck or whatever the four wheeler and and go up over the field and and uh, set the post you know and do it like I did 50 years ago. And um, and you know I remember I remember very well doing this with uh, one of our our interns and she had a master's degree in mathematics. Uh, she was a, you know, a mid-level manager in a big fortune 500 company doing, uh, IT work, uh, sharp, sharp gal. And we went out, we put this post in. And, uh, by the time I was done with her, she just stopped. She said, man, I had no idea that there was so much technical nuance to running a post hole digger, you know, putting in a post. And, um, and, and I think I think that's you know, that's the important thing to learn and to know is that there is no there's nothing we do here is thoughtless. It's all it's all uh, uh, you know a carefully thought through deal. And um, you know I, I wish we could give everybody a you know a threadbare look, 
but it's just it's it's hard to it's hard to go back completely, you know, when you have when you have the infrastructure and the and the different things to do. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and but just even to hear that. Uh, you're practical when you make decisions about is it worth pulling out the big machine when we just have one or two posts to dig? Um, I feel like that gets lost on a lot of people when they have the machinery there, uh, and I think that's important oh, distinction. Yeah. A- absolutely. I mean, I know, I know farmers that um, that wouldn't imagine, you know, setting a post by hand <laughs> yeah. since they have a post pounder. Yeah. But uh, but goodness to me. Setting a post by hand, you know, takes uh, five or ten minutes. I mean, depending on obviously depending on where you're digging, and um, and it, it, it'll take it'll take twenty minutes to hook up the post pounder. Um, you're actually a lot better now. You know, if you're going to set a hundred posts, that's a different story. But if you but if you're just setting a a couple, uh, it's much more efficient to just go do it by hand and just fire up a machine. Yeah, which touches on a lot about your motion studies that you talk about in this book, which I have a few questions about, but I think we'll we'll move on for right now. Um, so I guess speaking of the book, uh, we're really here today because you have the new book out, Your Successful Farm Business. Uh, and I'm curious, what motivated you to write this book? Well, it's been 20 years since I wrote You Can Farm. And... That book has sold extremely well all over the world. Uh, it's been translated into foreign languages too, and um, and I, I just you know twenty years. I just started feeling like you know, we've we've tweaked this more. We we know more. Uh, my thinking has matured. I mean, you know, I've I've grown too in my own you know uh, whatever in, in your 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 maturity of articulating different things and so i i wanted to kind of do a a a graduate course if you will uh from you can farm to take it to another level in fact i i I thought about calling it you can farm 2.0 but then i was concerned if i call it you can farm 2.0 nobody's going to buy you can farm 1.0 you know so (laughs) so uh you know, I'm always thinking marketing, right? <laughs> and so uh, I didn't want to. I didn't want to jeopardize the sales of the old you can farm. So I, I, um, I, I wanted to just write the update. And and there are, as you can see from having uh, looked through it and read it, probably. Yeah. Uh, you know, there are there are just there are just some really cool things. You know, like like the whole. Um, uh, mobile, modular, management intensive, uh, you know, some of those and the, the time and motion things that, that, that there are, you know, really critical elements that I don't think I articulated certainly with as much finesse and as much, uh, you know, a, a practical application in you can farm as, as I've done in this one. And so this is, this is all, this I view as, as second level. Read you can farm first. And, the, and then read this one. Yeah. Um, and, and just to the pe- folks who are listening, uh, if you haven't read You Can Farm, that's absolutely uh, a masterpiece. I have my permaculture library in, in the guest house where we host students. And uh, 
I have three copies of it on our shelf, and it's the first book I tell anyone interested in farming to read. But after having read uh, Your Successful Farm Business, the new book, I can attest that there's there's practically no repetition. It's all fresh information, uh, sometimes just well-articulated what was once maybe just a vague idea prior, uh, as well as a lot of, a lot of changes you've made, um, maybe even things that you said you weren't doing previously, but you are doing now. Uh, so, so definitely the combination of the two books is, is a great way to put it. It's an undergrad and then a graduate level series. Yeah. Um, and, you yeah. know, I would say, I would say one other thing she had just to, just to flesh that out. I also, as I, I travel a lot, you know, I speak a lot, travel a lot, teach a lot. And I, I'm always impressed by the lack of, of business savvy in the, in the farming community. Now that may be said for all, you know, all kind of, you know, uh, uh, businesses that, that may be. But, um, but I, I see a lot in the, in the, especially this, uh, kind of regenerative, uh, slash permaculture slash healing type of, of farming that, that we espouse, uh, that you and I espouse. Um, there's kind of a, a notion a lot of times that it's so noble, it's so righteous, it's so, it's so good that society owes me a living just because I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, 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 um, and, and what happens then is that, that we, we find it easy to develop a bit of a, almost an entitlement mentality, um, you know, you should love me just because I'm so lovable, because I'm building soil, uh-huh. and 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 the result is we become sloppy. We become sloppy in our business, and and um, I, I I I I think that this is a this is a danger and it's weakness. And I want us to appreciate that we we have to. It's not all business, and I hope I make that clear in the book. You know, it's not all about money by any means. But, um, but you have to think like a business, or pretty soon, you know, you can't pay your taxes and you can't. Uh, yeah, you won't you can't be there. Doing what you're going to do, right? Right. Yeah. No. Uh, you know, we touched on a couple of really interesting things there. Um, I think. The idea that if you grow uh, organic food, people will flock to your door to get it is not necessarily true. And I think you say that flat out in the book. Um, And on top of that, uh, a lot of people maybe that are enthused about healing the landscape or building soil are maybe put off by the, the extreme capitalism that they're witness to growing up, say. Uh, and it's And it's hard to reconcile the two. Uh, but as you said, if, if you aren't making enough to pay the taxes or to pay your team, uh, you won't mm-hmm. be in business for long. You won't be able to heal the soil anymore. Um, yeah. So, so yeah. yeah. That's and, right. No, I, I, th- I think you're exactly right. I think that, um, that, that too often those of you, people like you and I who, who, who come to this, we, we do have an aversion to the, the unbridled, amoral capitalism that we see, you know, that, that externalizes costs, that abuses, uh, you know, different things. As Wendell Berry says, you know, there's, 
<laughs> there's more gross domestic product in what's wrong with us than what's right with us. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, and so, so yeah, there does tend to be uh, an aversion, almost a, you know, a, a bad taste in your mouth. But, um, you know, there, there's a balance there too. Don't let don't let your pendulum swing so far that you become floppy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so you know, maybe uh, just a bit more on this because this was my next question was really a, a lot of your books. In fact, most of your books are are a lot about how to or techniques for regenerating the land, uh, tools of the trade in a sense. But this book was really, you know, quite focused on marketing and sales and, and the business aspect of, of farming. And just maybe a bit more about why is direct marketing so important for small farmers? Yeah, well, I, I think the, the main reason is that small farmers can't, can't generate the volume at a low margin to compete with the commodity program. The, there's a, a major difference in kind of protocol uh, between a commodity business and a craft business. And one of the keys of craft is that you have to, ha that, that you can do it at low margins. I mean, because it is a craft, it's not a commodity. So you're not just cranking out machine-driven widgets. You're making handcrafted widgets. That's what gives you your distinction. And and so in order to do that, you have to message it, story it. You have to differentiate it in order to create a bit of a, of an exoticness to it or a specialness to it. And, and, and that then gives you a margin so that you can make a living at low volume, but higher margin. And for, for smaller farmers, uh, by definition, we simply can't this is one of this is one of dad's I remember his one of his first things was we're small farmers. We can't we can't run a five hundred thousand dollar combine. We can't we can't grow, you know, uh uh five butler bins full of corn, all right? <laughs> uh so so when you're a small farmer you you either you either become a a town job and run the farm on the side uh, and sell commodity, or if you want to become a full-time farmer, you have to come outside the commodity system, and that's and that's why I think wearing all the different hats. And we've all heard the the middleman makes all the profits, the middleman makes all the money, and instead of instead of uh, whatever uh, you know, uh, lambasting that notorious middleman. <laughs> when I hear that, I say, well, well, you know, I raise my hand and say, sign me up. You yeah. know, I'll be that little man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and I'll wear those hats. And anyone, anyone who thinks that marketing is easy obviously hasn't done it yet. Um, you know, we, we have the, you know, if you build it, they will come. No, uh, if you build it, they won't come. <laughs> they, they will only come if you, if you tell them a compelling enough uh, reason to come. And that, of course, that goes into marketing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I have a little story, too. I remember when I first got into farming, I was I was 20 years old. I was still in college, but I spent the summers on my great uncle's farm, which was a 60-acre cabbage farm, just monoculture cabbage, some chilies in the, in the later in the summer. <clears throat> and I was cutting cabbages, you know, 24 to a box 
from like five in the morning till nine and then they would go to auction and he was getting about 14 cents a cabbage and two years later i started a market garden and i was selling my cabbages for three bucks a head and i just remember looking at the math and it's like i have to grow like 30 less 30 times less cabbage you know when i sell them at that price um and it's true as a small scale farmer uh if you're not hitting the production volume you need to to market it and get more of that retail dollar yes that, that's right and of course as soon as your as soon as your volume drops guess what else drops your machinery requirement drops your 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 labor your hired labor uh and what happens then is yes you're producing more uh you're producing far fewer heads of cabbage but you are now you are now using your your head your intellectual capacity to be able to become the graphics artist specialist the storyteller the the price setter that you know you're wearing more and more of these middleman hats and and um it al- it allows you to instead of having all of your farm what equity in you know in machinery and depreciable assets you're now moving a lot of your equity to to skill and intellectual informational capacity and that becomes much more resilient cuz no banker can ever foreclose on your skill or your knowledge yeah and even that idea i just love you know for me what you've always stood for is you know farming is not for for the bad students farming isn't just for the people who can't make it in corporate world that farming really to be a good farmer it takes intellect in uh intelligence and and deep thought about the landscape and about your time and i think just what you said kind of flies in the face of the idea that farming is is a profession for for the not so smart folks you know um yeah yeah well you know the the jeffersonian um intellectual agrarian you know that's that that was his vision for america and um and un- unfortunately we've you know we've moved to a place where we we um uh, view farmers as kind of the intellectually uh, disadvantaged, yeah. and uh, the the smart the smart smart kids uh, all have to go to become you know doctors and attorneys and accountants and and bankers and IT professionals, and uh, and the intellectually disadvantaged can well you you, know, you can go be a farmer, yeah. And I would suggest I would suggest that the level of creativity and uh, and innovative uh, capacity to change the trage- trajectory of our food and farm system um, is going to take our best and brightest. You know, uh, why don't guidance counselors say, "Wow, you're so smart. Uh, we need you on the farm." You know, <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the, the the day the day that statement gets uttered will be the day that we know our culture uh, has some hope. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so you know. You know, speaking of that, so uh, I, I really love just the first chapter of this book, of the new book, uh, Your Successful Farm, Farm Business, really spoke to me. It was called Working Landscapes. And if I can preface the question just briefly, I think it is changing. Maybe guidance counselors aren't yet saying, oh, you're really smart, become a farmer. But I do think more of uh, maybe the urbanites or the, the post-college kids 
are feeling a call to reconnect with the landscape, I think you can only be disconnected for so long before your your soul kind of yearns for that connection with 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 the earth. Um, but what I think happens is is they come with this intellectual capacity, but they also bring a fear of disturbing the landscape. Um, and I think that partly grows from what they've seen our culture do to the planet uh, for the most part. Uh, and I just want to quote from the book where you say, these hands that can harm can also heal. And I just think that's such a beautiful quote. And I'd like if you could maybe talk a little bit about uh, the challenges that new farmers face, especially if they don't have a farming background, uh, when they're confronted with how to change or interact with or, or reimagine the landscape. Hmm. Yeah, well, that's, that's such a good one, and, and, and thank you. Yeah, that's a very soul-level uh, uh, chapter, obviously. Um, and, and I think, I think that as 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 new farmers uh when when we call you know newbies when newbies come to it um you you have to you have to appreciate that your experience level um you don't want to overrun your experience level and i mean this is one of the things i so appreciate about permaculture you know where bill mollison always said he said if you get onto a piece of land don't do anything for a year take a notebook walk it walk it one day a month through every through a whole year, make notes and, and 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 see where where there's wet spots, where there are dry spots, where the the warm tunnels of airflow, where the cold tunnels of airflow, where do the where do the grapevines grow, the brambles, those sorts of things, and and you essentially take notes so that then as you as you develop your plan, uh, you are leveraging and you're actually you're you're not you're not assaulting or uh, uh, um, appreciate yeah. yeah, yeah, uh, the, the kind of natural proclivities of the land. And, and so I'm a big believer in function driving form. Uh, doesn't mean I hate art, but it, but it does mean that, that the best art is art that, that has purpose, that has practical application and functionality. And so, um, hmm. I, I'm, I'm certainly a big believer in mentors. You know, uh, multiple counselors get get people who know more than you out there to take a look at it. But um, but but realize realize I think that until you actually you know start pouring concrete, um, everything can be changed. And so do things gently. Um, at the beginning, I, I talk about uh, fencing, for example. If you don't know where to run fence, don't make anything permanent. Don't make anything permanent. And then whatever, whatever you haven't moved in three years, make that permanent. And what'll happen is you, you'll find that, well, I wish I'd have cut this corner a little bit tighter. Or I wish I'd have maybe, you know, this, this opening, this gate opening should be over here 20 feet. And the problem is that you can't, you can't Google experience. <laughs> yeah. And so, and so, the, uh, the key to a, a lot of this wonderful, you know, lightweight, portable, uh, mobile infrastructure and and control mechanisms, shelters and 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 uh, um, electric fence and water pipe and that sort of thing, you know, uh, Darren Dougherty, who's a you know a dar, he's probably the number one water guru in the world right now. He says, he says, uh, when you start laying water water line, um, 
don't 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 bury it for at least a year, maybe even two. Um, that allows it to go through hot summers and cold winters and do the you know the expansion and the contraction thing. Make sure all your couplings are good, and then after a year or two, then bury it. Mm-hmm. And and because as long as it's on top of the ground, it's easy to move. Oh, I, I wish I had to run it down around this hill, you know, instead of up down through that valley, for example. And and uh, and you can change it once that once you slice into the ground and bury that pipe, it's pretty much there. There's not much you can not much you can do about changing it. And so uh, so you know a lot of this this this. Gentle, gentle infrastructure. Let let the the let your experience level move with the infrastructure. Don't lock yourself in to a bunch of stuff. I mean, for that matter, don't even build a house for a couple of years. Live in a yurt. Live in a live in a caravan. A a, a mobile home. Okay. Um, and and you know, does the wind blow you over? Is this a good location? Is this does this work with the hub of the operation? Um, you know, all those kinds of things. Keep keep yourself malleable and work with the landscape um, before you know before you you sink yourself in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think you know just and even re- relating back to the newbies who don't have the experience yet, I think it's really easy to think of a landscape as permanent. Like, oh, I I this tree's here. It's always been here. It will always be here. Uh, or, you know, just to understand that, like you said, if you're not pouring concrete, pretty much everything is still changeable. And I think that's a liberating feeling to just know, like, I can try this, make a mistake, as long as it only really cost my time, I can change it around and, and, and not have much loss and just a gain in experience and knowledge. So um, the, the, the impermanence of the landscape is, is actually, I think, an empowering piece of wisdom that a lot is is lost on a lot of newbies for sure yes yes i couldn't agree more and 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 when you talk about efficiency and roads and access you know that that's a big one you know oh no am i gonna cut in with a bulldozer and actually you know move soil and create access but but efficient access is is foundational to the efficiency of the entire operation and and if and if you if you can't go to that back three acres because uh, you know um, you know nine months out of the year because you go through a, a boggy mud hole and you're afraid you get stuck, um, basically those three acres are are inaccessible. You know they they might as well be somebody else's. And and so some you know some terrain development that the the whole idea I think I say in the book that it takes a lot of faith to assume that every Every single piece of terrain, um, wh- wh- whenever the land fell together from the last volcano, earthquake, tectonic shift, <laughs> yeah. you know, what have you, uh, wh- whatever, whatever movement was, to assume that that movement is, is, is the best and the most perfect situation, yeah. um, frankly, takes a, you know, takes a lot of faith. And, and I think, I think it actually takes maybe even a little less faith to think, well, we can, you know, we can massage this. We can, we can caress it and we can, you know, we can put a little dam across this valley so the water doesn't just drain off. 
And uh, when you start doing that sort of, that's again one of the things I love about permaculture is uh, that that it that it dares to to um, ask this question: Can we can we caress the landscape into into a better uh, um, functional, make it a more functional system than whatever the terrain, you know, fell together as so many years ago. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I wanted to just add when you say uh, that idea that the way it fell through nature is the best way it could be is not only requires a lot of faith. I think it also requires uh, an elimination of the human from the landscape. Um, yeah. Yeah. Which you talk about as well. I had to laugh yeah. a little. Or did you want to say something? Well, just yeah, I, I call it uh, I call it ab- abandonment environmentalism. Environmentalism by abandonment, as opposed to environmentalism by participation. You know, those are the those are the two big differences. Yeah, absolutely, and that's a, an, an incredible distinction that I think just is not clear to a lot of people who are fighting for the earth. Uh, and they mm-hmm. think yeah. removing people from it is, is the way to go. And, and I'm starkly against that belief. And I think you do a yeah. great job in the book speaking of that as well. Um, yeah, I had to laugh because literally the next follow-up question was, in permaculture, there's a saying that you should live on a piece of land for at least one year before you do anything permanent, <laughs> you know, and, and you brought it up. Um, but that leads me to a question, you know, I'll just read it out. It says, this highlights the importance of observation and of learning what the land has to say throughout the seasons and the changes in the weather and the people patterns. And I was hoping maybe you could speak a little bit about how you observe a new parcel on your farm or if you rent a new farm i know you have a lot more experience but is there still a process that you go through do you still wait a full year or or how do you tackle a new farm design (laughs) oh that's uh that that's a great question yeah we do we do uh lease about eight properties so we are constantly in fact we're we're uh as we speak this moment we have a a big uh two big pieces of excavation equipment over at the newest farm that we've just uh, leased, uh, putting in a, putting in a pond uh, below a spring, uh, in a, it's also a pretty large uh, catchment basin. Mm-hmm. And that will, that will gravity feed to a cistern that's going to go down to the farm hub where there'll be power. And then, uh, and then we'll pump that water from the cistern, we'll pump that water through around the whole farm. Um, because there's, there's not a, there's not a high enough spot to get a, to get, Enough water catchment to to get enough um, gravity. gravity pressure, yeah, on the whole place. So we we kind of split the difference. We we build a high pond. We gravity feed to a cistern that's that's at, at about the midpoint of the farm, and then we're not so far down the hill that we can't pump it back up to the clear to the top, way above the pond. And obviously, we can you know we can get it to the to the lower section. So um, yeah, we, yeah, we've we've developed. Oh goodness, you know, 12, you know, 12 properties over the, over the last uh, few years. And so, you know, we've gotten, obviously when you, when you do that many, you start getting a lot more proficient at it. You, you, you can go in and you can read a landscape and you can put the fences in the right place the very first time. You can put the water line in the right place at the very first time. Put the corral in the right place at the very first time. Um, and so we've become very good at it. So, so the way I approach up, uh, you know, a piece of land is, um, 
is that there are, there are certain givens. Uh, I call them givens. I mean, you could call them necessaries or whatever, but there's some, you know, there's, there's some things you can't change. I mean, obviously you, you you're not going to make a valley a ridgetop and you're not going to make a ridgetop a valley. All right. So there, there, <laughs> this is all within, you know, within limits. Um, and so the, the first thing, the first thing you need is access. If you don't have, if you can't get there, if you, if you can't get there, you can't do anything with it. And so I view access as kind of the number one thing. So uh, access, obviously, you don't want it to be too steep. Um, and if you go through a wet spot, you have to get drainage. You have to, you know, get culvert. My, my favorite going through a, you know, a, a valley or a wet spot is uh, rather than putting a culvert in, I I put a pond there, and then we drive over the pond dam and put the culvert in the top of the dam instead of down at the bottom of the ditch, you don't have to move any more dirt, but instead of just having a drainage, now you have a pond that you're driving over the dam. And um, and so so we do that, you know, routinely. And um, and the, the, that's all part of getting an access. Once you have an access, then that access becomes the main artery for your livestock movement, your, uh, your, your, you know, your, your trucking, your going to the woods, bringing firewood, whatever, whatever transportation you've got going across the place is going to go on that artery, which means that we put electric fence. We, so we put a, a fence on both sides of that artery and we don't put it real, real close. We, we, we try to make these, you know, 20 feet apart, mm-hmm. um, so that we've got room on the edges to, you know, you can let trees come. You can let the edges get nice and healed up with berm. You, 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 you I mean, you can. Um, you've got a little bit of edge there. Is my point. If, if you if you run the if you run the fence right up against your grade, your road, you don't have you don't have wiggle room uh, to 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 make maintenance or keep your water bars up. That sort of thing. Um, and so, you know, your, your broad-based dips, your water bars and things are all part of, you know, getting the, you know, getting, keeping the water off the road. Remember, uh, that what, what maintains a road is getting the water off. So you don't want any velocity and you don't want any volume. Volume and velocity are what kill a road. Mm-hmm. So keep that in mind when you put in your water bars, broad-based dips and how you're, you know, putting it through. Um, so you got that, you got your fence on both sides. Well, then that becomes, then, then on one of those, you're going to run your water line. Um, cause you can always put a, you know, put a hose across the road when you've got livestock on the other side. So now we've got access. We've got our, our basics of control, the, the, the fencing and then the water and then the water. And, uh, so, so, you know, those are, those are your three, you know, kind of key, uh, components. Uh-huh. Then, then if the, then beyond that, then we're looking at critical areas. So now beyond that, we're looking at number one riparian areas. Okay. So riparian, we don't want the cows in a creek. We don't want the pigs down in the water. So we're now we're going to uh, fence out the, what we call the, uh, you know, critical, uh, you know, areas that need protection, like riparian areas. Yeah. Uh, maybe a, a wood lot, uh, anything like that. Okay. So we're, now we're going to protect those areas. We're going to fence those out. And once we have that, then if the fields are still too big and the rule of thumb there, is um is it you don't want you don't want to to have any field where your your temporary portable uh fence is going to be more than 
about 250 yards. That's about all the fence you can carry and the stakes you can carry in your hand. Okay. So 250 yards is kind of a rule of thumb uh, for how long you want. So if you've got fields that are longer than that, then you're going to want to subdivide those, and you'll want to do that on the terrain to create homogeneity in your different fields. So you have south aspects together, north aspects together, valleys together, mm. ridgetops together, because all of those grow at different rates and they have different kinds of vegetation and so in order to uh to to manage the grazing properly you don't want too much uh dissimilarity in a given in a given paddock you want a lot of similarity in a given paddock um so that the vegetation is going to grow similarly it'll get dry similarly wet similarly that sort of thing and and so you know that's that's the way that's the way we approach it. And of course, every place is every place is a little different, but um, but I, I like I like going with with givers like that uh, because if you if you just go and you're just thinking kind of a, a shotgun approach, well look at all I have to do here. You you're you're um, you know you have what we call um, you know paralysis by analysis. <laughs> and, yeah, <laughs> and if you just start with what you know, well, I know I've got to get I've got to get from here to the backside of the property. I know I have to do that, or I'm never going to use it. Well, then, so a given is we need access. Yeah, a given is the act the access is multiple use. You don't want the access to be uh, single use. So we're going to fence the access so we can have multiple. It, it can be used for livestock, machinery, walking trail, whatever. And then, and then we need water. Without water, you have no life. So you develop your water. Your water runs along the lane, and those, and, and that gives you a very specific, practical, systematic way to, you know, to put in, you know, kind of the, what I call the major development, landscape development components. Notice I haven't said anything about a house. Yeah. Haven't said anything <laughs> about a barn. Haven't said anything about a, a tool shed. You know. None of that stuff. That yeah. will come. That will come after you get what I've described in. Once you get that in, then it will begin to come apparent. Well, where's a natural hub? Where's a natural, you know, confluence of things? And and that's where then you want to develop your, you know, your zone one. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, yeah. Just uh, that. Thank you for that. Um, I just feel in, in those three minutes. You just transferred a, a really a large amount of distilled knowledge. Um, I think earlier in the interview you said there's a lot of deep thought that goes into it, uh, and it's obvious when you describe that sort of thing. It may look so simple and elegant when it's finished, but but the level of understanding that goes into the decisions that are made um, is distilled through lots of experience. Um, so that's really really cool. Uh, I want to. I'm going to jump ahead and then kind of circle back because I feel like it's a, it's a good time. I want to just briefly describe my farm, um, and and I think would tie into some of the themes of the book. Uh, but we're located in a, a really high tourist area uh, on one of the most beautiful lakes in Guatemala. The land is uh, about two and a half acres, and it's super rocky. It's in uh, the river bottom, uh, loads of rocks. Uh, we're quite diverse. We focus on animal products. So we do broilers, laying hens, 
We also range dairy goats on public land, so not on the two and a half acres. We do honey and then uh, salads and microgreens. So we've been here for about eight years. We're still going strong, Um, managing to pay the bills, but still not a salary I would like for myself. Um, Aside from the cash flow, which is our number one challenge, uh, I see this constant battle between production and marketing. Um, and some years I feel like we overproduce and we have to eat inventory, but then other years, uh, we, we, our, our production maybe fails to satisfy the markets and bring in the easy cash that's there. Um, and I know in in one of your earlier books, you said that nature will reward even the most feeble attempts at production, but I still feel like I'm on this constant struggle with being able to produce enough versus marketing too much and not being able to deliver. Um, and I wonder if you see that, maybe not in your farm, but when you when you visit other maybe farmers who are in the maybe three to eight year mark, uh, do they have, do you see this challenge and how do you manage it, this balance between marketing and production? <laughs> uh, one of the, one of the biggest, uh, biggest questions um, that, that indicates a great deal of, you know, of, of experience on your own. So, um, yeah, this is a, this is a very telling question. Um, and, and I wish I had, I wish I had a cookie cutter answer. I don't have a, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, a squared plus B squared equals C squared. You know, I wish I had a nice little formula for it, <laughs> but I, I will, I will tell you this. And yes, uh, inventory control, man, managing those two things. Um, what we think of as inventory control between production and your marketing is, you know, is a big is a big deal, and trust me, even the big guys don't do it extremely well. Um, I mean, at, at least at least biologically, um, you know, when, in, a, in a factory system, managing inventory is a little easier because you don't have perishability. But as soon as as soon as you kick this perishability thing into it, yeah, uh, and the more perishable something is, you know, the the more uh, the more difficult it is. So. Um, so that's one reason why it's good if you're, if you're running a farm business to have aspects that are perishable and aspects that aren't perishable Mm -hmm. and the, and well, for obvious reasons, the the perishable will keep a long time and it'll, it'll maintain cash flow, uh, as your perishable, you know, can, can ebb and flow, um, which includes, and of course, sometimes you can take very perishable products and make them imperishable through either dehydration, canning, freezing, value adding, you know, uh, uh, all sorts of, of ways that you can make something perishable into something imperishable. I mean, this is what, this is what drove, um, cheese making in the Swiss Alps, right? It was, was, milk was very perishable. Cheese wasn't. It was, it was more, it was more, uh, uh dollar, it was more valuable per pound. So when you're turning it off the mountain, you want to tote off, you want to tote off imperishable high value cheese. You don't want to tote off a bunch of cans of fluid milk. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and so, you know, so, so this drove it. So a balance, and what you've described here is a, you know, interesting balance. Uh, you know, eggs are kind of, eggs are kind of a, a, a limbo here. They're, they're, they're somewhat perishable, but they're not real perishable, you know, so they're kind right. of a, a hybrid, uh, in some of these other things. So, um, this, this inventory management is what has driven 
many, many people to community-supported agriculture or some sort of a, a subscription scheme so mm. that you, you have subscribers and you know what's, you know, what's going on. And, and in fact, this is why, for example, Amazon Prime uh, has deep discounts for its uh, membership because because in the algorithms that they use, uh, you know, and I just heard an interesting report the other day. Did you know? Did you know that that every single Google search that you've ever done can be brought up by Google in profiling you? So so just imagine <laughs> every time you've ever you've ever put in your search your search uh, square something forever. Google has that information. Wow. And they, of course, they, they sell it to Amazon. So what I'm getting at is the, the algorithms for customer profiling are, are just, are astronomically more sophisticated than you and I can imagine. And, and so that's why these big outfits give deep discounts for the people who join and subscribe and, and, and utilize them. Um, why there's, you know, the airlines give loyalty points and all this is because they know that th- that's, that's part of their inventory control. Yeah. Because they know they've got these people. And, and so you and I, as small businesses, we need, you know, we need that same buffering. And so at our farm, you know, we do, we do loyalty points. Mm-hmm. Um, and and we have loyalty cards. Uh, you know, when you buy five hundred dollars worth of stuff, you get a a ten percent ten. What is it? Um, yeah, it's essentially a ten percent loyalty uh, program. Uh, when you spend five hundred dollars and you get the ten punches on your card, then you get fifty dollar a fifty dollar free merchandise the next time you you purchase. Nice. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Um, and, and and what and all all of that is is a way to kind of chart, describe, and 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 even intuitively watch your um, you know your 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 sales so that you're not just uh, whatever starting from scratch all the time. You're you're you know you've got some continuity there, and you've got some um, uh, some stuff you can count on. Yeah, exactly. And and um, so so one of the one of the best things I know for um, you know for inventory control is to mesh your value adding your value added components with your um, you know with your your inventory issues. So if you could, for example, if you're if you could make um, uh, Quiche, you can make quiche from extra greens, extra microgreens and eggs, and freeze quiche as a as a heat heat and eat meal, for example. That that meshes up an inventory control. If you can turn, for example, extra spring eggs, I realize you're in Guatemala close to the equator, you don't have the fluctuations <laughs> that we have here. In egg production, we have, you know, a lot of fluctuation between spring and fall egg production. If we turn, if you turn the, the spring flush of eggs, for example, into noodles that don't require any information, mm. 
mm-hmm. uh, any refrigeration, and you can turn those into noodles and just and just put those by and let them build up during the spring. Then you have noodles to sell all year long from that spring flush of eggs. You know, when when you when you mesh when you mesh imperishable value added with the very perishable, it helps to even out that inventory flow um, in, in a very in a very practical way. Beyond that, uh, <laughs> none of us has it figured out. Believe me, I mean, it's, <laughs> there's no, nobody nobody I know, not even Amazon, has a good has a good handle. That's why there are sales in the grocery store. That's why because you know uh, inventory is a is you know is a big deal to manage. Yeah, it's, it's all. It's also why. It's also why you have to set your normal price high enough to handle the salvage, because there will there absolutely will be salvage times throughout the year, and and you can't operate on salvage. So um, so unless you have a way to salvage at a very high return. You have to get enough for your prime stuff to be able to carry the salvage price and not feel bad about about a salvage price. Right. That's that's interesting. Um, so yeah, that's actually a few really good ideas, uh, and I and I appreciate that. And and I think you also you get like almost like a twofer because not only do you handle the inventory by value adding and making something perishable into something imperishable, but you also potentially raise your, 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 uh, your product price when it's value added into something, something more. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And the chances are in Guatemala, you don't have quite as many uh, regulations as we have in the U S. Absolutely. I, you know, I was, I'm fighting the urge to talk a lot about my farm while, while I have you here, but, but that is definitely one thing. Uh, we have, we have no regulations. So we do dairy, uh, and we sell raw milk and we make cheese and, uh, we have, I have a, you know, we have a kitchen that we can pump out commercial products if we want to. Um, so yeah, we, we, we've over, not overcome, but we're not saddled with a lot of the bureaucracy that I think a lot yeah. of, of farmers in the United States struggle with, yeah. and that's for sure. That's correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah that's um, right. So I also just like kind of sticking along these lines, because I, I do think, thinking of your new book, uh, Your Successful Farm Business, as a graduate level book, not to say that people who, without farming experience shouldn't read it. It's a great read for anyone interested in the field, but, but I think it also speaks really powerfully to people who are already kind of in the game, you know? Um, and I'm curious, uh, like, do you see ever the situation, maybe small scale farmer in the, in the three to six or three to eight year timeline already in it? And I know you've said in other books, you watch so many businesses just throw in the towel right before they're about to turn the corner to success. Um, what's the opposite of that? Like, is there a moment where you see a lot like a pattern where there's a new investment? All right, the idealism of the first few seasons wears off. We know we have something because the sales are there and the production's there, and I still enjoy the work. But but uh, maybe it's like you need to really make it serious, and, and maybe it's an investment in some more infrastructure 
um, or something like that. Like, like instead of someone throwing in the towel when it gets challenging around year five or six, what is the alternative? And do you see a pattern where, where uh, new infrastructure or just taking it to the next level? And, and how does that look? Yeah, how it looks. Wow, that's such a, another, your, your questions are just wonderful. I, I <laughs> do a you. lot of these and it's so great when I, when I get really, really new questions and, and you're, 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 you're just hitting some really neat ones, even ones that I haven't thought of for a good while. So you're pulling out of me stuff that I don't normally talk about. Um, great. thank you. And, and, yeah. And, uh, so on, on this question, I, I think there are, there are telltale signs. I, I, I think one, is when a, when a person first recognizes that they can't do it all. Uh, you know, I think in the book I say all the gifts and talents necessary to run a successful business don't grow on the same pair of legs. Yeah. And so one of the one of the if we were if we were laying down like what are the telltale signs that somebody's turned that corner at five or six years and they're gonna and they're gonna make a, a thriving business? Um, I, I think I think. The first one is that they begin looking for partners, and I'm, I'm using the word partners loosely. It could be an employee, it could be a subcontractor, it could it could be a formal partner, but they start looking uh, for 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 complementary uh, partners because they now suddenly realize I I don't have the talent, I don't have the time to do everything that has to be done, and I need people that are good. At stuff that I'm not good at. If you if you've looked at the the business stuff from um, called Strength Finders, the basic supposition is that rather than that you and I working on our weaknesses, we actually leverage a lot more by working on our by 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 leveraging our strengths and finding somebody else that is strong where we're weak. You've always heard, well, you know. Keep trying to better yourself. You know, uh, work on what you're not good at. Uh, uh, and the whole idea of strength finders is forget working on what you're not good at. You don't like it anyway. You're not good at it anyway. Instead, tweak, refine, um, leverage what you are good at, what you do enjoy, and then bring on a partner that complements you in the stuff that you don't enjoy and you're not good at. So I, I, I think if you want to just put partner <laughs> yeah. as a you know, as as a, a benchmark, um, I think number number two would be um, the you, you mentioned the word investment. I think that's a good one. Um, I'll simply use the word efficiency. Um, a, another benchmark is when somebody begins truly doing this time motion stuff to to look at efficiency when they start making a, a map, for example, of where did I walk today? Where did I double walk? And where did I walk without carrying anything? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when you when you see a person get serious about efficiency, um, uh, you, you know you know now they're starting to think like a business because you know when you're when you're kind of running a hobby or a passion. You do it because it's altruistic. You you do it because it feeds your soul. But when you turn that hobby or passion into a business, a day comes when you realize, I really like this business. I want this business to thrive. 
Now what do I need to do? And you start thinking of actual actual business kind of thinking, which is efficiency. You know, the lean the lean farm uh, concept, the stuff that you know uh, Jean Martin Fortier is talking about, or or that um, uh, no, the, the <laughs> why am I why am I uh, blank on the the fellow in in Maine? You know, the guru. Oh, Elliot Coleman. Elliot Coleman. Um, uh, senior moment there, Elliot Coleman. You know the stuff uh, that he does. You know he and 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 along with efficiency, I'll just add here um, margins. Um, mm-hmm. Margins become the next benchmark. And you know the reason that Elliot doesn't grow corn is because it doesn't make margin per square foot. And um, yeah, you know sweet corn. Uh, and, and, and when you go to, when you go to Elliot's, you say, you know, what's your margin on a, on a foot of carrot? He knows. Yeah. He knows. And, and so, so the, the financial element, this, this, this accounting stuff where you start actually keeping records and you're doing, you know, monthly P and L statements and you're watching your cash flow, that whole margins, you know, maybe we could just call this, um, I'm just thinking out loud here. Uh, because I'm actually developing this list. I'll, I'll write this down for myself because this is a good list. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I'll, I'll just, I'll just call it, you know, um, margins and financials. Um, you know, when, when you start, when you start looking at that more than once a year and you're looking at that flow through the, through the year, um, that's another kind of telltale sign that you're starting to look at it. Uh, that, that you're going to turn the corner, and and you know what, the truth is, you know, and I know a lot of people never arrive at any of these. Yeah, absolutely. They, they, they never arrive, but the ones who do, the ones who do, when they arrive at this point, you can be pretty sure they're going to thrive. These are these are those telltale marks of the of the thriver. Well, wow. yeah. Well, that's that's really. I'm glad that you also enjoyed that question. Uh, the the on the spot list is is really helpful for me. And I in the past two years have been seeing elements of those pieces uh, in in my operation. Uh, we we got rid of our our hogs, our pigs, because the locals raise practically the same quality pork. They're free range outside, and I can mm-hmm. buy them for cheaper than I can raise them. And mm. then and then divert the the pig scraps, which from a couple of restaurants, to cut it down on the cost of the hen feed, um, and yeah, just little examples like that. So so that was really sure. enlightening to hear. Um, absolutely. So I know our time is getting close. I have just one or two more quick things. Uh, I was surprised in this book to read that Polyface now cuts up their chicken and sells breast meat to the customers who are willing to pay the higher price. Um, the older books promoted, you know, the whole use the whole animal attitude. Uh, and, and I got the sense that cutting up chickens was maybe not only against that, that ideal, but also potentially not profitable given the time it takes and, uh, the potential lack of market for the off cuts of the bird. Um, you actually inspired our farm to not cut up our chicken for those very same reasons. But now you have me rethinking and I know breast is more sellable as well as just cooked chicken pulled off the bone. So I was just curious why you made that change. Uh, I know the customers are willing to pay for, uh, as for your book, um, but just curious um, 
when when you see a market, how do, how do you how do you decide if it's worth a change? Is it just the profit, or is there something about you know other things you factor into that decision? Yeah, again, such a, such a great great question. So for us, that one of the things you have to do as a business is you have to appreciate that your context your context can change. If you're gonna if you're gonna be in business for a good while, um, your context changes. And so what we noticed, I mean, when, shoot, when we first started with chickens, you couldn't go to the supermarket and get a boneless, skinless breast. Uh-huh. Everybody knew how to cut up a chicken. I mean, it was, it was like in your DNA, right? You were born knowing how to cut up a chicken. <laughs> and, and, and then what happened over the years, we started hearing people, well, I'd, you know, I'd buy more chicken if, if I could get it cut up or, you know, if I could get a boneless breast or, you know, well, I'm not going to buy any because I only use boneless, skinless breast. And and as a business, you have to have your ear to the ground for your context. It's okay to be nostalgic. It's not okay to be so nostalgic that you become archaic. Mm-hmm. I like that. So, so, so you, you, can, you can become nostalgic to the point of obsolescence. And that's not... <laughs> And that's not good for a business. So we started seeing our sales drop as as the the as consumer ignorance increased, and 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 conven and the desire for for convenience only increased. What we started seeing was it was it was it became harder and harder and harder to sell a chicken. And so we felt like we, we said so. Finally, you know, after you hear this for the umpteenth time. It finally hits you in the head, and you say, "Well, goodness, if if this is what if this is our new context, if this is what it's going to take for us to stay in business, the customer's not always right, but they're right a lot of the time. So we, if we're going to keep them, we better we better start listening. And so the first year we did cut ups, we sold twenty thousand dollars more chicken without wow. raising another single chicken. Wow! Yeah. So that was a big deal. All right. So now, just to show you that these things never change, you know, you can't, you can never tie a knot in the string and say, we're good for the duration. No, <laughs> it's always changing. So now, one of the things we're dealing with now is, you know, we've run this wonderful, you know, uh, Metropolitan Buying Club delivery system. Uh, it's worked wonderfully. But what we're seeing now come in is all this pressure. I mean, incredible pressure. From Amazon, Walmart, from every quarter, uh, from from in the industrial organic community to whatever, for door to door delivery. And we've not done door to door delivery. We've done more, uh, you know, a kind of. It's not a CSA, but it, you know, it's order online, and we deliver to a central central drop point, and everybody meets us there and picks it up. And now we're starting to hear customers say, "Well, I, you know, I'd buy from you, but I just don't want to get in my car and drive and and and." And sit through, you know, five stoplights to go over there to, you know, Jane Doe's house and, and, and pick up. Can you come to my doorstep? Well, you start hearing this stuff and, and first it's a, you know, it's a, oh yeah, right. You know, you kind of, <laughs> <laughs> but, but then after you hear it the 10th time, the 20th time, the 50th time, you start realizing times are changing. And so you, you have to adapt. You have to morph. You know, this, one of the single biggest hot fad uh, business slogans today is, what got you here won't get you there. 
Mm, I like that. Uh-huh. And, and, and it's, it's, a, it's an extremely powerful, profound statement of context. Of course, you know, Alan Savory, everything's about context, right? Context. But, but, but it, it is true. It is true. What, what works in one spot won't work in another spot. And what worked 15 years ago and built a business does not work 15 years later and sustain a business. And so, so you have to, you have to adjust. You have to keep your ear to the ground, listening to your, to your customers so that you stay relevant within the context of your time. Absolutely. Um, I'm reminded of uh, one of the permaculture principles, which is uh, to creatively use and respond to change. And I just think Polyface and, and yourself is a shining example. Um, I think a lot of people, when they read one of your books, have this idea of, of, <clears throat> of an idealist spirit, maybe not willing to change. But every time I read something new by you or, or now talk to you, it's just clear that I think that flexibility to respond to change is probably the number one key to success or ongoing success, maybe. Mm, mm. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, I, I, would, I would agree. Yes. Great. That, 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 that doesn't mean that you don't have any conviction. It no. doesn't mean that you throw all your values out the door. What it does mean is that, that as long as it's not, you know, immoral or unethical or anti-ecological or all those kinds of things, a lot of things in life are malleable. There are a lot of them are valuable without, you know, going off to the dark side. And we, and we need to appreciate there are hills to die on. But there are a lot of hills that aren't to die on. And, and we need to, we need to have, you know, it takes a lot of discernment and wisdom to be able to maintain our, you know, our, our, uh, our, what we call our inner compass, to maintain our inner compass within this, this flexible context. Absolutely. Um, so my, my last quick thing, uh, kind of a throwback to the previous question where you made the list which I just want to repeat once more for everyone. So some of the hallmarks of, of transitioning around the five-year mark uh, is partnership in whatever form that takes, um, the, the efficiencies, and then also the margins and financial analysis. Um, and I just wanted to speak to the partnership once more. And uh, I've read your book, Fields of Farmers, but after reading the new book, Your Successful Farm Business, I feel compelled to go back and reread uh, the, the Fields of Farmers because I think partnerships is probably the hardest thing, at least for myself, to entertain how, how to bring on other people in a meaningful way that's harmonious for everyone involved. Uh, and I also just want to quote your new book that says, a farm is not successful until it's generating two salaries across two generations. And I think they, they can kind of fit together. And uh, I think, you know, I say we have a successful farm, but we're definitely not anywhere near that. And um, it's a new challenge that I feel really excited about. And I'd like if you could maybe speak on that a little more. How, how is it bringing on new partners and, and thinking about generational sustainability? Well, you certainly are correct. Uh, the partnership, the, the people, the people aspect of this is far more difficult than, than raising animals or plants. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the goat, the goats are always happy to see you. You know, they, they're, they're, they're not, 
they're not moody. You know, the the cabbage plant um, uh, never says, uh, "I don't want to see you today." Yeah. And, and and so the people aspect is is absolutely the you know the biggest um, issue here. And and this is true in farming, in other business, at every place. Uh, so um, so the whole. The, the the main thing I just want to point out here is that when we talk about our people, we're not talking about a top-down corporate structure where where you know the the CEO gets a pile of money and the guy on the bottom end of the ladder gets almost nothing, and and it's and and all the information and the instructions are flowing from the top down. Rather, what we see this is as a team of partners. And so we don't structure it with with uh, wage earners, you know, people punching a time clock, wage earning. What we're trying to do, every one of these relationships, we're trying to structure so that there's a shared risk, shared risk and shared incentive. So if if you do well, mm. I do well. If I do well, you do well. And and if I suffer, you suffer. And if you suffer, I suffer. That that shared risk and incentive circle completely changes the relationship now now people um some people don't want any part of that because they want guarantees but you don't have to live very long in this life to know there's not a lot of guarantees yeah and (laughs) and so and so part of adulthood part of adulthood is understanding there aren't very many guarantees and if there's going to be a way made i'm going to make it and uh, you know, be the change you want to be. I mean, there's a million ways to, to describe this. And so we find it very empowering, um, individually and, and it, it takes the tension out of the employer employee, uh, relationship and, and, and all of these things when we share incentive and share risk. So we structure the relationships by the piece. By, fun- by performance, by function. So rather than having people who are raising chickens for so much an hour, we say, well, you can raise chickens for so much a, so much a bird. Yeah. And if, 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 if you let the foxes eat all the chickens, then obviously you don't get paid. And, and people who love accountability are drawn to this. People who don't like accountability are not drawn to it. So it becomes a, a vetting a kind of a, a naturally vetting um, system to make sure that you have people of shared savvy, shared, well, confidence, affirmation, savvy, you know, to, to go get it done. It also means that when you're paying by by performance or function, per, paying by function only, it means that that um, the, the the boss does not have to compensate for um, for all the negligence. I mean, for example, if, if if our protocol is whenever you go check, whenever you go move the cows, you take a tote that has two spare insulators, a pair of pliers, a little piece of wire, uh, a piece of baler twine, and and a water valve. Okay, let's just say that that's the you know it's that's the protocol. the protocol. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, if somebody if somebody neglects to take that tote and gets out there and needs a water valve. And they have to ride the horseback, walk back, take the four wheeler, whatever it is, and come back to the hub and get a and get a, a what I say a valve to go back out there and fix something. 
That's it's their really time. Tests, yeah. It's really tense if they're on my clock. But if they're <laughs> if they're getting paid for moving the cows at a set rate and they neglect to do something and have a problem that costs them time, they're not on my client time. That completely takes the tension out of that whole relationship. So yeah. so we so we have tried to structure everything here um so that so that all of the different functions and activities that are performed have kind of personal autonomy hooked to them and and we as whatever owners or you know farm owners whatever we don't we don't have to absorb um all of the risk that's going on and man, does that make us sleep better at night knowing we've got <laughs> completely, you know, we've got stakeholders, we've got stakeholders that are completely structured and incentivized to do the good things, to do the right things. And we don't have to sit here and bird dog and be, and be Mr. You know, Mr. Policeman all the time. That's just, it's, it's so liberating. It's unbelievable. Awesome. Yeah. And there is a lot of information about that in this book, as well as in your other book, Fields of Farmers. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah, so I just, you know, uh, I just want to say thank you for, for taking the time. Um, and before I let you go, I was hoping if you could just tell our listeners, you know, how they can get in touch with Polyface, where they can find your books, uh, and other ways they can get involved. Sure. Well, uh, the easiest way we have, a, we have a wonderful website, Polyface Farms, P-O-L-Y-F-A-C-E Farms, Polyface Farms. You just um, Google that in and, uh, and it'll pop right up and we have a gift shop. Our books are there, information, uh, CDs where I'm speaking. If somebody wants to come and hear me yak or if you want to get in touch with me to come and do a seminar, anything like that, uh, it's all, if you want to come for, you know, visit the farm, it has all that. If you want to be an intern, it has that. Uh, it's a, it's a very, uh, comprehensive website. And of course, too, our books are available, you know, through Chelsea Green Publishing, who makes them available on Amazon.com, in your local bookstore, any place books are sold, um, the, the books can be acquired. Great. Yeah, well, thank you, Joel, for being here, taking the time to be with me. Uh, really enjoyed it, and maybe someday soon we could do a follow-up. That would be very exciting. Thank you, and, and blessings to you. Yeah, cheers. So before we wrap up this show for the week, I've got some exciting news about the upcoming months. And I'm joined here now with my good friend and founder of Atitlan Organics, Shad Goodsey. Hey, buddy, what's new? Oh, man, so much is happening. First off, though, I just want to say thanks for having me, man. I really love your podcast. And I actually had a great time doing that interview back in one of the earlier episodes. Anyway, probably what's most exciting is our new collaboration between Atitlan Organics and Abundant Edge. As you know... We've been offering permaculture design courses for over six years now, and they really have become a staple here in Lake Atitlan. In particular, though, the Intro to Permaculture course is just an amazing way for travelers, gardeners, architects, basically anyone to fully immerse themselves in this new paradigm of permaculture design. Like, honestly, you can't take this course and still see the world the same way afterward, man. It's life-changing. But like I said... What I'm most excited about is that now, thanks to our collaboration, we're going to be able to offer your natural building course immediately after every one of our Intro to Permaculture courses. 
Literally. This two-week offering is like possibly the most complete package that I know of available anywhere. Basically, with these two courses alone, I think that someone should have everything they need to start their own regenerative project or just their own regenerative lifestyle. That's that's what I'm excited about, man. But uh, yeah, what about you? What's going on? Man, well, you know already that me and the Abundant Edge team are gearing up for a big season as well. I mean, starting in November, we'll be breaking ground on a regenerative farming demonstration site, which is, of course, right down the hill from your farm. We'll be building animal pens, a classroom, outdoor kitchens and lounge areas connected to houses, and it's all going to be made out of natural materials. I mean, the site is going to serve as a demonstration farm for perennial and regenerative farming methods for years and years to come. And we'll even be offering courses and internship opportunities to people who want to learn for themselves about how to build with natural materials and set up their own farms. Heck yeah. That sounds amazing, man. And honestly, this is just about the best place in the world to learn all these things too. I mean, this little town of Sununa in the gorgeous tropical mountains of Guatemala, like right here on the shores of Lake Atitlan, it's one of the most beautiful places in the world. And on top of that, you have this traditional indigenous Mayan culture that's still rich and alive. And probably my favorite part is that we have this world international community of alternative people that are open to new ideas and really putting things into practice. I mean, within walking distance of the Bamboo Guest House, you've got loads of things going on. we got the projects that we've already talked about, but you also have yoga retreat centers. You have Charlie Rendell's Natural Bamboo Building School. You have Love Probiotics. you got Fungi Academy. And honestly, loads more alternative, blow-your-mind type stuff. I honestly just feel like this is where it's all happening. Yeah, man, it really does. And I want to get as many people as possible in on these projects, but we've got to make sure that they've got the skills first. So what do you say? Let's offer a big discount to those who sign up for both courses. I mean, all food and lodging in the amazing Bamboo Guest House is already included in the tuition. So this will be like the best deal that we've ever offered. That's a great idea. Because I mean, people can still take just one course if that's what they're into or if they can't make the full two weeks. But this will actually make the two courses more accessible to even a wider audience of people. And that way more people can get the knowledge that they need to get started doing what they want to do. So hey, to all of you listening out there, we really want passionate and driven people like you to come and be a part of the community and the ecosystem that we're building out here. So if you're ready to take the next step and really dive in, there's no better time to invest in yourself by joining us on this journey to a regenerative future. Shad, how can they get in touch with us and see the upcoming events and workshop schedule? For sure. Well, for start, they can either go to atilanorganics.com and click on the workshops tab, or they can check out abundantedge.com and click on the education tab. Either one of these will get you all the information you need for all of the courses that we're offering in the months ahead. We're really looking forward to working and collaborating with all of you inspired and enthusiastic people out there. But even if you can't make it out yourself, I'm sure you know someone in your network who would jump at the chance to get involved in this positive, regenerative, and truly life-changing projects. So this is Oliver Gaucher and Shad Goodsey inviting you to come and be a part of the regenerative future that we are building. Can't wait to see you here. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles, as well as the services we offer, from design and consulting to education. While you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter, 
where I share updates and pictures on our projects, regenerative living articles, and even free resources and giveaways. Right now, you can get a discount code for 50% off your digital subscription to the incredible Permaculture Magazine of North America simply by finding the code under the show notes of this episode. Thank you sincerely to all of you who have and continue to add comments and send feedback to me. Your contributions help this to be a conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at info at AbundantEdge.com. All of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you again on next week's session.